News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110-1800-WBT-1110. Pete Callender Show. I'm Pete Callender. <laughs> Should I go with just Pete Callender Show or the Pete The, you'd think the the, yeah, probably. Okay. Um, was it feasible to secure Kabul, even temporarily? It's a fair question. This is a fair, a fair question. And it was one that was presented to military planners and the Biden administration weeks ago. They had a meeting in person, senior U.S. military leaders in Doha, and they spoke with the leader of the Taliban, of their political wing. And Abdul Ghani Baradar, the political wing leader, who has no involvement whatsoever in any of the violence, obviously. He said, we have a problem. We have two problems, or two options, rather, to deal with it. He said, the U.S. can take responsibility for securing Kabul, or you got to let the Taliban do it. And throughout the day, President Biden remained resolute, according to the Washington Post, in his decision to withdraw all American troops from Afghanistan. The collapse of the Afghan government did not change his mind. Okay? Did not change his mind. The military leadership, aware of these orders to get everybody out, told Baradar that the U.S. mission was only to evacuate American citizens, Afghan allies, and others at risk. The United States needed the airport to do that, and that's it. And on the spot, an understanding was reached, according to U.S. officials, that the U.S. could have the airport until August 31, but the Taliban would control the city. That's from the Washington Post, okay? Over at hotair.com, Allah Pundit, says Team Joe is going to have to answer for this, but we can already guess what the answer is going to be. There was no way logistically, they'll say, to get enough American troops into Kabul quickly enough to secure a city with more than 4 million people. So Kabul is essentially, what, four times the size of Charlotte? And maybe that is true. Maybe like you could not secure a city that size. Um, but was it feasible? We don't know. That's what the strategic planners, notably Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, and Mark Milley, chairman of Joint Chiefs, Right, They're going to be asked this at the upcoming congressional hearings over the great Afghan bug out. And maybe the truth is that it wasn't feasible at all. Or maybe uh, this was the most costly example yet of Biden's refusal to insert more troops into Afghanistan, even if only temporarily, to ensure a more orderly withdrawal. He ended up having to do this anyway to secure the airport, Right. But did, were they trying to avoid the optics of putting more troops in, even if it was meant to secure the evac? They they did not want that to be the narrative for when the 20th anniversary of 9-11 occurred. That, to me, like I said, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I also look at all the evidence and try to weigh it, you know, honestly as I can and, uh, you know— recognizing I have bias like everyone else, but I look at this stuff and I say, my goodness, 
it does appear to be the case that he did not want to send troops there, and that might have been, well, I mean, because he moved the deadline up, right? They they didn't want to have September 11th be the deadline. They changed it. They moved it up to August 31. Fast forward two weeks, and the message that's reportedly being received by NATO helpers in Kabul, right, is that everyone's got to get out. The Taliban established extra checkpoints around the airport perimeter yesterday, partly to provide extra security against ISIS attacks, but partly also to seal it off so no more Afghans could get out. France and the U.K., they were scrambling to uh, propose a resolution at the U.N. that is going to establish a safe zone in Kabul to get some of the friendlies out. I mean, how they plan to enforce that safe zone (laughs) if it were to even pass. Uh, anybody's guess there, but in theory, all of all of Kabul would have been a safe zone these past few weeks if Biden had accepted the Taliban's offer to let the U.S. and NATO troops secure the city. But we said no. Or maybe we could have let the Taliban secure the city in exchange for reoccupying Bagram Air Base and conducting the evacuation from there. You know, it's it's a bigger airfield, so more people could have been airlifted out. It's easier to secure than an urban airfield like Karzai Airport. The Bagram plan, though, would have had its own challenges, to be sure, right? Is the base still operational? Has it been completely looted and wrecked? I've seen some video um, that, you know, they, they've got all of the choppers and all this equipment. Are they just going to, like, let the Americans back in there after we left it all? And since Bagram is miles away from the city, how would we have gotten Afghan friendlies from Kabul to the base? It would have been even easier for the Taliban to prevent Afghans from departing the city under those circumstances, right? They just blocked the roads to Bagram. And we may have ended up evacuating far fewer people in the end than evacuating them out of Karzai International. These are, and I don't have answers for this, by the way. I can't tell you that I know which plan would have worked better. I can say this one looks like a complete Charlie Foxtrot, though. Let me go over here to Spencer. Welcome to the program, Spencer. How are you today? Good, fine. How are you? I'm all right, sir. What's up? Bombing the Taliban back to the Stone Age would be kind of like trying to teach Earl Scruggs how to play banjo. That's, yeah, because they're, they're already there. Yep, they're already <laughs> there. That's right. That's part of, yeah, that, and that has always been part of the... Nice. That has always been part of the problem, right? That's always been part of the problem with fighting the Taliban is that their their weapon systems are, are crude. They are old. Uh, they don't have a ton of you know technology that we built our military to detect because we have to be able to detect that stuff too. And all that stuff we left them, they'll go through that. They, they don't understand how to keep it up. They'll go through that stuff and just trash it. Yeah, probably so. And they're selling a lot of it to other countries, right? China, yep. Russia, they want the tech. And China, you know, will reverse engineer everything that we, that they got. So it's, it, I mean, it's basically, it's, it's a very, it really is a very Democrat thing to do is to give China a bunch of military uh, blueprints for things. It, it's very, uh, I mean, I'm thinking of the Clintons with the, the missiles and such. It's, uh, it, it's just a very Democrat administration thing to do. Yeah. Spencer, I appreciate the call, man. Thank you. Um, so that was... Uh, Hotair.com, Pentagon prepared for mass casualty attack at the Kabul airport hours before the explosion. Yeah, they knew this was they knew this was 
going to happen. Well, they predicted it was going to happen, but their intel sources were very, very certain. I have details on that. This one uh, comes from Politico. You'll notice I'm drawing from the legacy outlets, the corporate media, the mainstream media. These aren't far-right websites I'm I'm quoting here. This is Washington Post, Politico.com, right? These are, these are not you know, extremist kinds of websites. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. If you'd like to weigh in on any of this. Uh, speaking of weighing in, actually, I forgot, like, uh, so two weeks ago, I forgot to tell you that I did my first weigh-in with PhD weight loss. And then uh, Friday, I couldn't tell you because I wasn't here that I did my second weigh-in. So so you get, I, got, I got two weigh-in notices to do. Number one, so the first week that I was on PhD weight loss, I dropped 10 pounds. And then the second week, seven pounds. So I have lost roughly... 7% of my total body weight before uh, uh, in two weeks that before I went into PhD weight loss. Isn't that pretty amazing? PhD weight loss nutrition in South Charlotte. A nutritionist will set you up with your own personalized and customized plan. Um, and just like I have my own plan, so like people say, oh, what is it? And wh- you know, what's your plan or what, what are you doing? And like I, I can tell them and I, I talk to people about it, but your plan is going to be different than mine. Everybody's plan is different because you're a different person than I am. Uh, but if you go to their website, myphdweightloss.com, that's myphdweightloss.com, you can get some information. Uh, give them a call, 800-674-8991. Schedule your consultation, and you can do it now. I mean, I'll wait. I'll still be here. You can podcast this so you won't miss anything, but you are worth it, okay? You're worth it, and they're rooting for you. You can join me on this journey. We're transforming our lives with PhD weight loss. Go to myphdweightloss.com and uh, then, you know, share with me your progress as well. Because that's one of the things. There's a whole psychological component to their program that I've not seen other programs use. One of the things, the first thing that they have you do is to tell other people, you know, find somebody in your life that you trust that is rooting for your success and that could be me, by the way. If you want to send me a letter, too, I'm happy to act as that person for you that um, will help you be accountable. And that's one of the things that going on air does for me. It keeps me accountable. So uh, 17 pounds, two weeks. It's pretty amazing. And, uh, yes, I, my clothing is already uh, – I unpacked a bunch of boxes. And I took clothing out of the boxes, and I was like, I can wear you again. I can wear you again. I mean, they're all wrinkly, so I got to get them washed first. <laughs> But yeah, that's uh, it's a it's a very nice feeling to have. So come on and join me, P- myphdweightloss.com. Joseph writes into Pete.Calendar at radio-one.com. That's my web or my uh, email about the prepping I was talking about last hour. He says, Pete, I have about two hundred forty plus rolls of toilet paper and five gallons of hand sanitizer to get me through the race war slash hurricane slash. Booster zombie uprising that is obviously coming. That's yes, well, obviously. Thank you, Joseph. That's good. You can never be too sure. Be right because people will be trading food and probably gold and silver for the toilet paper. It's not called mountain money for nothing. Um, 
All right. Just 24 hours before a suicide bomber detonated an explosive outside of the airport in Kabul, senior military leaders gathered for the Pentagon's daily morning update on the deteriorating situation in Afghanistan. This is the report by Lara Seligman at Politico.com. Seligman? 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 Seligman. I think that's how she pronounces it. Anyway, speaking from a secure video conference room on the third floor of the Pentagon at 8 a.m. Wednesday or 4.30 p.m. in Kabul, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin instructed more than a dozen of the department's top leaders around the world to make preparations for an imminent Mass casualty event, according to classified detailed notes of the gathering that were shared with Politico. So somebody leaked out. Is it? By the way, it's another thing, too. Isn't it amazing how few people are willing to talk about Joe Biden's mental state as opposed to Donald Trump's mental state? Isn't that weird? Oh, I know. It's because Donald Trump was, you know, suffering from dementia, and he was crazy, whereas Joe Biden is totally not, and that's why there isn't anybody talking to the media about that, right? So during the meeting, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, warned of, quote, significant intelligence, indicating that the Islamic State's Afghanistan affiliate, ISIS-K, was planning a complex attack. Commanders calling in from Kabul relayed that the Abbey Gate, where American citizens had been told to gather in order to gain entrance to the airport, that the Abbey Gate was, quote, highest risk and detailed their plans to protect the airport. Quote, I don't believe people get the incredible amount of risk on the ground, said Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, according to the classified notes. On a separate call later that afternoon, or 12.30 a.m. Afghanistan time, The commanders detailed a plan to close the Abbey Gate by Thursday afternoon, but the Americans decided to keep the gate open longer than they wanted in order to allow their British allies, who had accelerated their withdrawal timeline, to continue evacuating their personnel. So we kept the the gate open, and that gave, even though we knew there was this imminent attack coming, They kept the gate open because the British had been staging their evac uh, uh, process out of a hotel a couple hundred yards away at the Barron Hotel. And uh, they had more people that they wanted to run through. They had accelerated the timeline. And so that's why they kept the gates or the Abbey Gate open. American troops were still processing entrance to the airport at the Abbey Gate at roughly 6 p.m., when a suicide bomber detonated his explosive vest there, killing about 200 people, including 13 U.S. service members. All right, we'll get uh, more uh, details on this in a minute. The Pete Callender Show on News Talk 1110-993 WBT. I am aforementioned Pete Callender. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Let me jump over here to, this is Brian. Hello, Brian. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, thanks so much for calling. Oh, no problem. I, I will call every day if I need to. Oh, oh my goodness. Thanks so much for taking my call. You got it. Okay, so <laughs> real quick, I just want to say I've been listening to this, and, and I, just, I want to say this really quick, and something else just happened over the last hour. I don't know if you saw it. 
Um, but based on the letter of the agreement that we have with the Taliban, there's no reason we can't have military contractors and operators on the ground in Afghanistan with uh, close air support. Um, the reason this is important is because we don't want to trust the Taliban to do anything that they say they're going to do because we know how these terrorists operate. Mm-hmm. Um, 24 hours after the uh, time elapsed, you know that they will have Americans on camera uh, doing horrible things so they get money. So I, would, I think that that money is much, much better spent on mercenaries uh, in-country rescuing Americans than it would be to give money to terrorists. Um, one other thing I want to mention real quick, I don't know if you saw this, Cook County, Illinois, over the last few hours just set a dangerous precedent. They denied a woman visitation to her child because she refuses to get the COVID vaccine. This mm-hmm. is well, an incredibly yeah, a, dangerous precedent. A, you yeah, about this? A, a judge. What's that? It was, it was a judge, one judge, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I, I completely disagree with the judge's ruling, but it was one judge. I am hopeful, fingers crossed, that less stupid people overrule her. Let's, let's hope so. But, yeah, uh, I mean, let's hope so. Hope. But yeah, I mean, this is the problem. And as, as a sort of, you know, veteran of the DSS fights that occur, um, there are a lot of judges that make bad decisions uh, when it comes to parental rights and foster care and all inside these systems. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you'll get no argument from me at any of that, but like one judge doing that though, is not, you know, they're building the FEMA camps level of, uh, of alert. You know what I mean? That's a, yeah, true, true. Right. Now they are building them in, in Australia. Like that is like, that is actually happening there, but they don't call it FEMA, but they're building those massive quarantine facilities. So like, yes, if you're an Australian, be very, very worried because whatever's happening there, like they're going back to their penal colony roots or something. I'm not sure what's happening there. You know, I'm so glad you, you brought that up, Pete, because I wanted to ask. Um, I, I pretty much cannot watch the mainstream media in the United States anymore. It's really difficult for me to find um, alternative sources. And do, you, do you ever watch, like, Liberal Hive Mind or or, uh, or uh, Tim Pool? I, well, I don't watch tim pool because he does like was it like 14 or 15 podcasts a day i think i, I think he's up to now i know i'm kidding but yeah he does a lot he, he's a very yeah. prolific uh, uh content creator uh but i i read him I, I follow him on twitter so i basically what i have done and people ask me this all the time you know where do you go to get information and such so if you are on twitter and i know people that do not want to be on twitter and that's fine but this is how i do it and this it, it, essentially i have recreated um, an AP Newswire kind of service for myself using Twitter. And you can, anybody can do this, by the way. You just set up an account, and you go and you follow people or organizations that you want, and you can follow as many as you want, but then you can create lists. I'm a big believer in the lists on Twitter, and so I have one that's called Influence. I think there are like 150 people that are on that, and that's it. And those are the ones that I I watch all day and uh Generally speaking, I'm going to get multiple sides of a story based on what those people produce or or tweet out, right? Because they are prolific as well. They comment on things right, left, libertarian, and uh, and usually. So if if stories are bubbling up, I'll catch it by going through my Twitter feed. And by the way, my, that feed is public, so anybody on Twitter can uh, can follow my list. And I don't get anything for it. it you would just click on the file, you, you would just be able to copy basically everything, and now it's one of your lists. So it's all yeah, public. I, 
I really wish more people would do that. And before I let you go, I just got to ask you real quick, and I'd be willing to bet a lot of money about this. I bet you Glenn Greenwald is on your list. He is. Nice. <laughs> right. Nice. He yeah, he is nice. on my list. Brian, I appreciate the call. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and maybe maybe one day I'll read to you every single person. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, and I have some people that are um, that are state people. I've got a lot of national people. I've got reporters and pundits. i got people that used to be commentators and then kind of got out of the business, but, you know, they, they still produce things, they still write things and opine about current events, and I find them to be um, valuable, a different way of thinking than I have. And so, like, I'm not threatened by, like, I think I actually even follow Malcolm Nance, that idiot. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people that I follow that if you just looked at that one account, you'd be like, Pete Callender follows Rick Wilson and Tom Nichols. Wow, he's a Lincoln Project guy. Like, not at all. I've had them both on my show in the past, but they they went full Trump derangement syndrome. And like, and that's like Tom Nichols has been the biggest disappointment to me over the last five years. Like that was a guy that I thought was he was I thought he was smart. I thought he was insightful and all this and rational. And then Trump broke his brain. Um <laughs> he did. He broke a lot of people's brains. Um all right, so back to this story at Politico. American troops were still processing entrance to the airport in Kabul at the Abbey Gate at 6 p.m. Kabul time on Thursday when a suicide bomber uh, attacked. And this was because they had a plan to close that gate because they had been told there was an imminent complex attack coming, but they kept the gate open longer than they wanted in order to allow their British allies to continue evacuating their personnel that were based at a nearby hotel. So this account that Politico got came from, uh, let's see here, the account of the internal conversations among top Pentagon leaders in the hours leading up to the Thursday attack is based on classified notes from three separate calls provided to Politico and interviews with two defense officials with direct knowledge of the calls. Politico is withholding information from the Pentagon readouts that could affect uh, ongoing military operations at the airport. So this is interesting to me because um, somebody is playing CYA right now. Why would you give Politico these classified readouts unless you're trying to make sure you don't get any on you? You know what I mean? President Joe Biden is now, I'm trying to, this is, uh, can we pull this up? This is uh, on, I guess, that spectrum. Oh, it's not News 14 anymore. It's News 1. And he's he's on FEMA TV. He's talking about the damage uh, from Hurricane Ida. Cedric Richmond, and we look forward to working with with him as well. Uh, First of all, let me thank you for signing my request for a pre-landfall declaration, and then last night signing the major disaster uh, declaration. That's going to be very helpful. Uh, I feel like I'm at the Zoom call. On shore with everything that was advertised. Uh, The surge, the rain, the wind. Uh, The good news first is all of our levy systems, particularly our federal levy systems and hurricane risk reduction systems, performed magnificently. 
Uh, they were not overtopped. None of them were breached. Even even our levy systems that were paid for with state and local funding uh, in Labouche and Terrebonne Parish performed extremely well. It would be a different story altogether uh, had any of those uh, uh, levy systems failed. Having said that, the damage is still catastrophic, uh, but it was primarily wind-driven, uh, but we know that there were some areas that received uh, tremendous rainfall as well. Uh, but we're going to be dealing with this with this damage for quite a while. And you mentioned the power outage. That is critical for us. Uh, and it's really a million homes and businesses that are out. And it's, uh, my best guess is you're getting closer to 2 million people uh, without electricity right now. Uh, and, of course, we're trying to prioritize the restoration so that our hospitals come back up first because yeah. while they're all on generator power uh generators typically you know fail after some period of time so we want to get them back up first and in the meantime we already have the corps of engineers on the ground identifying additional generators that we can bring to these hospital locations uh, so that should we have a failure before power is restored we're going to be able to switch them over they're working extremely hard on that and and we have fema embedded with us here since before the storm uh, the truth of the matter is they've been at GoSep since the day I became governor. They, they haven't left uh, because of one disaster uh, or emergency after another. Uh, but they're doing really well. We, we look forward to uh, visiting with uh, Administrator Criswell, who I think is going to be able to come down tomorrow, Mr. President. But uh, this, this is going to be a long haul, and, and uh, we know that we're going to need uh, assistance with a housing uh, program. We're putting together preliminary information this week uh, that can potentially drive uh, an appropriation for CDBG. Uh, we'll be getting with you all, uh, and I'll work through uh, Cedric Richmond on that, Mr. President, uh, to, to make sure that we can get a program up and running uh, just as soon as possible. But but I want to I want to finish with really the most important thing. We are still in a life-saving mode here doing search and rescue. Uh, the, the roads, the highways into the most affected area were completely uh, clogged with debris, down power lines, trees. Uh, we're making really good progress. We actually started our ground uh, search and rescue this morning at daylight. We dispatched uh, those uh, forces. And by the way, we already had search and rescue teams from 16 states in Louisiana as of yesterday. They started moving to the affected areas at three o'clock this morning. At six o'clock, they were they were uh, actually doing search and rescues from 911 calls that came in over the night that couldn't be uh, responded to. And then by six o'clock this morning, we actually were affecting rescues uh, out of the air as well. And the last thing I want to say is that the very first rescues occurred at a hospital in Galliano down in Lafouche Parish by the U.S. Coast Guard because they were able to fly before before any other assets could and they were able to move about seven patients uh from a hospital down there you probably saw the hospital that had the roof uh just completely uh, uh you know yeah. taken off yesterday uh your coast guard uh rescued and and, and relocated those patients uh first thing this morning and we are very appreciative of that well thank you well, look, uh, I wanted, we, we worked real hard with you to get the search and rescue teams in place, on, but they, you, you say they have been able to respond. 
on, yes, on a timely and, way. Yes, sir. And, and I, I can't tell you they're everywhere we want them, but but they, they started responding first thing this morning. And, and those 16 teams, that doesn't include the National Guard or the, the wildlife yeah. fisheries officers here. You know, I've got all 5,000 of my National Guardsmen activated. Uh, we're going to end up with about 5,000 more coming in from out of state through an EMAC request. And one of the reasons this is important, Mr. President, is we've got 2,400 of our soldiers in our 256 uh, Brigade uh, Infantry Combat Team. They're deployed to the Middle East. Uh, yeah. And so uh, we're, we're going to have EMAC requests where I think as early as tomorrow, uh, we're going to have additional soldiers uh, coming from National Guards from uh, from sister states. And that's going to be very helpful as well. All right. So well, that's uh, that's just a Zoom well, look, call going uh, on between the, uh, the president and the governor of Louisiana. And uh, they're just broadcasting it on FEMA TV, I think. When did FEMA get its own channel? I don't know. I mean, that's Spectrum News 1. Um, but FEMA, yeah, they're, well, they got the logo. It's their logo in the back. But um, if he has anything of uh, newsworthiness to, uh, to say during the, during this meeting, I'll bring it to you, but uh, it's kind of dry. I mean, that's why you pay reporters to go sit through these things and then give you the highlights because it's very, I mean, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of the politicians talking about, oh, you did a great job. No, you did a great job. No, you did a great job. And then, you know, the reporters kind of got to sift through it all and be like, okay, here are the numbers. Here's, you know, the important stuff. So, all right, back to the um, the story at Politico that I read as a whole bunch of CYA about why the uh, suicide bombers were uh, were able to get into the vicinity of the airport in Kabul, Afghanistan, and kill 13 U.S. service members along with roughly 200 Afghan civilians that were trying to get into the airport. How did that happen? And uh, the story in Politico, which is based off of classified notes that were taken during a couple meetings in the day or two before the attack, the notes indicate that they knew an attack was coming, They said it was going to be significant, it was going to be complex, that it was ISIS-K doing it, and that the Abbey Gate was at the highest risk, but that the the military personnel, the leaders on the ground at the airport, kept the gate open longer than they had planned to keep it open because the British were still evacuating some of their personnel that had been staged at a nearby hotel. The uh, transcript of the three conference calls that were authenticated now by a defense official details conversations among the highest levels of Pentagon leadership. It makes clear that top officials were raising alarm bells and preparing for a potential attack that they had narrowed down to a handful of possible targets and a 24 to 48 hour time frame. projections that ended up being deadly accurate. The intelligence about the security threat at Kabul airport detailed on the calls was relayed up and down the chain of command, according to a second defense official speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss top secret conversations. Right. So this is everybody saying, look, look, we knew this was going to happen. We had intel. We told everybody this went all the way up the chain of command. This was not our call. We were doing it for these reasons. Like, 
just so much of this smacks of CYA to me, just reading the final product of the report here at Politico. All right, news is next on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT.